From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. So I went to see Barbie, and like Mary and I don't go to the cinema very often, because obviously, I mean, we've managed to palm the kids off on their granny for a few days. So we were like, yeah, we got the place for ourselves. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> After, do you know what though, right? So they drive you a bit mad, don't they, all the time, like... And then when they're gone, you're like, I miss it. But you don't miss the stress and the strain of they're having to shout at them every 10 minutes. You just like, there's just a void. So we've got over that. Like this morning, we watched telly in bed and we were like, we should be shouting at children. Don't you feel like we should be shouting at children right now? Because <laughs> it's that sort of time when you're like, we should be getting ready for school and just shouting. So yeah, so we decided to go to the cinema. And first of all, like I was probably one of the least pink people there on account of not wearing any pink and being like a middle-aged man or whatever. <laughs> And there were lots of people really embracing it. But I was I was totally up for it because yeah. I think I respect Greta Gerwig as a director anyway. She's, Absolutely. you know, I really enjoyed yeah. Little Women. There's other things that she's done. I haven't seen many of her bits, but so I knew she'd do it all right. And basically, I just loved it. I gave it like a nine out of ten mm-hmm. because Ken is hilarious mm-hmm. all the way through. There's plenty of bits that make yeah. you laugh. There's some good dance dance moves. There's a dance battle thing. And just at the end, there's a little bit that totally made me cry. So... I felt like it had oh, everything. Well, there you really. go. I, I think reg- that's good. Regardless of what kind of little girl you've been, whether you've been a big, bald, but hairy little girl with a beard like me, or a legit little girl in your past, I think Barbie's worth a look. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to check it out. I mean, I had an entire suitcase full of Barbies growing up that now my daughter plays with when she go visits her grandma. So do they? <laughs> We've got vintage Barbies. Yeah, are they like classic Barbies as well? Did you have? Because she she goes like. Um, Oh, bloody, what's her name? Margot, Robbie, is stereotypical Barbie. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that she's known. She's like classic Barbie. But Oh, yeah. I had the classic Barbie. But I was really into Barbie and the Rockers. I don't mm. know if you remember them. They were like mm. a rock group. And so they had very cool late 80s, early 90s clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the whole band. Nice. 
So, um, yeah, I had lots of classic Barbies, but, you know, as a brown-haired human, um, I also preferred some of the uh, less classical blonde blue-eyed Barbies so that I could uh, act like I was them. So yeah. my sister was the classic. Oh, is she? Is she still? She's so, so yeah. perfect. I, I never... Oh, mean? no, no, no. But she's still blonde and blue-eyed. When we had over here, I mean, there was Barbie, obviously, but we also had He-Man. And I think you had He-Man over there around the same time anyway, right? In the Master of the Universe. Oh, yeah. I loved He-Man. And the Absolutely. The funny thing was my... My best friend when I was growing up lived across the road from me called Gareth. His brother Tom was always into She-Ra rather than He-Man. And we were always like, oh, he must be totally gay because he's into She-Ra. I mean, he is. Fair play. But the funny thing was, we're like playing with the guy with the massive muscles, and the bright suntan and all that sort of thing in the <laughs> tiny shorts. And we're just like completely going about it the wrong place. But... No, fair play. Well, I, I was way more into He-Man than She-Ra. You see, so, that's you probably go. the whites are done. If, if I'd have known, if I'd have known what Barbie had to offer. But that's a good starting. How are you? Anyway, so we concluded that we've known each other for a long time, and yet this is the first time we've mm -hmm. ever spoken. Yep, which is exciting. But yes, we've known each other a long time. We've done a number of things together, actually, I guess. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's been a crazy busy summer, but a good summer. <laughs> Are you? Yes, yeah, so you're on summer vacation now with the kids, right? Yeah, so we're on summer vacation. Um, my kids have been off for quite a while, but, um, you know, my son is older. He's 13, so he's sort of in his own world. Um, and my daughter goes to camp, and I was teaching a summer session, so I've only been in summer for like a week right and how long do you have off before or are you still are you still artisting throughout the summer do you have definite days when you're like today um, i'm artist director and other days i'm yes yes i have studio days that i go to the studio or do my work yeah so i have designated artist days i like that <laughs> these are my artist days today i'm artist director tomorrow i am stereotypical joetta <laughs> just Yes, yes. I'm the many hats Joetta sometimes and the artist hat Joetta other times, um, which also has many hats. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I have certain days of the week that I um, have designated as studio days and they end up shifting because I teach. Um, but I try to be in my studio at least two days a week and I prefer three days a week, but that doesn't always work out. And what are you teaching at the moment then? What's the course and stuff? Um, I teach various courses. Um, I was teaching drawing and photography um, this summer. So drawing one and photo one. Um, those are classes I teach pretty regularly. Um, I also teach a, like a visual foundations course for a graduate digital media program. I've taught that for like seven years. Um, and then I also teach a class that's uh, called Image and Context. It's about how the context of imagery changes their meaning. Wow. Um, and that's a foundational course at a college here. So, um, yeah. And then I teach lots of workshops in textiles, but I don't teach academically in textiles. What's the TLDR of the Image in Context course? Give me, give me the two-minute summary so I can pretend I've been on it. Um, it's essentially understanding that the context that we observe an image in changes the way we understand its meaning. And so they work from all found or um, appropriated images. And by recontextualizing the images through different mediums, they create content and meaning that is um, interesting to them. And so they do a collage, an artist book, a video montage, and a public archive project. 
Wow. It's a great class. Mm. I would have loved to take this class when I was an 18, 19 year old art student. It's um, it's a fascinating class to teach. And it's a really um, it's interesting because these kids nowadays, they know how to use, you know, they can figure out how to do everything themselves because of YouTube and all of that stuff. Um, so we don't actually spend much time at all showing them technique. It's all about like context conversation and examples and critique and we just kind of give them a whole bunch of links and then they figure out what they want to do from those links. It's an interesting class. Yeah, that's cool. And I suppose the fact that they're working with found objects means that, that, that gives them a starting point rather than them maybe having to think of a starting point for themselves. Yeah. I mean, they're given like a lot of different places they could go. So they definitely, I think it's better if they have a idea of a little bit of like their interests or what kind what they want to make work about because there's so many places you can get images. Mm. Um, and even the place you collect images from can have meaning, right? Like if you're collecting images just from, you know, fashion magazines, that's different than if you're collecting it from historical photographs. Um, so we, it's a lot about talking about like having intentional choices and where you get images and what you do with images and how, what they're surrounded by can affect how the viewer reads the images and that's it's i think it's kind of intimidating to them but it's also like a real growth it's like really twists their brain out of high school art classes and are like oh i'm in a different place now (laughs) yeah 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 because that speaks to the broader context of like art history and that kind of thing anyway as well right Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we look at all kinds of examples of artists that work this way. And then they are taking another class at the same time, that's more of an art history lens, but it's literally looking at images that are maybe of the same subject, but because of context are completely different in what they're communicating. In all the time I've known you, you've always been like an artist and a curator and someone who thinks broadly about the subject, you know, not just like your own work, but the themes and those kind of things. And I always admired you as a curator when we started out. I'm not dissimilar that I'm a curator, but I never did art at school. I never did any of these things. Mm -hmm. So this whole like historical context and those kind of things, I kind of blethered about for a long time. And I think eventually it gets to you. Eventually you have to pay attention to where you're at and what you're doing. But I wonder whether Mm -hmm. you're like you, you must have learned that when you started out because you started out doing photography and illustration. Is that right? Just photography. Just photography. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I started in photography, um, and I, I went to a school that was pretty rigorous in art history context. Like, you had to take a lot of art history. Um, and so I think I always just understood my references. I, I you know, I, I knew photo history, so I understood my place in it and what I was responding to and um, sort of what. I was coming, who were my like forebears of Mm. the type of work I did. And I think when I started to work in textiles, I really felt like I didn't have that education. Like I was making this work that had to do with textiles and textile processes. And I didn't understand like the artists that had done it before. I didn't have those reference points. I didn't know the critical discourse that was happening about it. Um, I definitely didn't know the history of it. And so um, 
that's really one of the reasons I started my blog many years ago mm-hmm. is that it was like a way for me to force myself to do research. Um, and so by writing about textile artists every day, which is essentially I did it daily, um, it was a way for me to be researching the context of textile arts and like the history and also what contemporary artists were doing within that history. Um, and so it was, it was my way of sort of creating that education for myself. Cause there's really not a lot of academic research on it. Um, for sure. I mean, it's much better now than it was, you know, 15 years ago mm. when I was in grad school. Um, but the subversive stitching came out the reprint came out while I was in graduate school, which was also really serendipitous because I was able to read that book, which is kind of like the only really academic book on embroidery Mm. as an art form. Um, You know, there's a lot on quilting and there's, there's a lot more on some of the more specific textile practices. Obviously there's lots on weaving um, on Annie, you know, Annie Albers has written so many wonderful things and there's a lot of other things, but um, Yeah. So I feel like I just knew that I needed, I mean, I was in graduate school at the time too. And, you know, you have to contextualize what your role is in the contemporary art world and where your place is amongst like the like arc of art history um, in your thesis paper. So I definitely was also consciously doing research because that was the moment I was in, in my artistic career. So, but I continue. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with that kind of stuff. (laughs) It's interesting because like photography, photography is considered an art form now i would i don't know i'm no expert but photography it feels like it took quite a long time for photography to get taken seriously as an art form but then photography's lifespan's a lot shorter needlework's been around for centuries but even now you know it's still quite hard isn't it we know lots of textile artists but you could say maybe like Mm -hmm. 25 years ago you could probably count their names on on two hands of the big names and then it, sometimes it feels like the only people who become really famous textile artists are famous artists who then start using textiles. So it still feels mm-hmm, now like mm-hmm. there's still like this struggle to get like legit, oh, this stuff's actually art because it still gets pigeonholed and crafts and hobbies as hard as is humanly possible or something. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I, I think photography still is like the ugly stepchild of art um, in a lot of ways. Um it's just that it's been able to create its own world. Um, like there are its own collectors. There are galleries that focus on photography and there are people that have been able to cross over, but I, st- I still think it's definitely, you know, it's not painting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing is as good as painting. Um, and I, I, I do agree that, I mean, for sure textiles like is there are people that are quite established that work in textiles, but usually they have already worked in painting or sculpture, and then they start to work with textiles. Um, I mean, I, for me, I think the most frustrating thing I often see with like contemporary textiles is that it's like a show of textiles. And to me, like, especially with embroidery, um, it's just, it's just drawing. It's a mark making process. And so I find it most exciting when like my textile work is in show in a show with paintings and Mm. drawings and sculptures, because it's really, 
it's just a different form of making marks. And I find it a little frustrating that it's the only way that institutions really ever support textiles is in this very like genre sort of way, mm. um, which is great. I mean, that's great that too. Nothing. And I definitely, I, yeah. And I love seeing a really well curated textile exhibition because it shows you that textiles is everything it's sculpture it's drawing it's painting it's installation it is all of those things um but i also have i've, I've definitely found it frustrating over the years that it's like you know why can't it also just be part like part of like a drawing show there there, there could be incredible embroideries in a drawing show because that's what drawing is is it's making marks that form an image on a surface um, and I don't do paintings out of textiles, but there definitely are people that are essentially just painting with thread um, that it seems like I just wish curators would open, like not textile curators, but regular sort of more traditional curators would be more open to seeing that. Um, in addition to all the amazing textile shows, because I do think when you see a really well curated textile show, it opens people's minds up to starting to think about textiles in that way and think about um, and realize the different uh, applications that textiles can have as a form of making. Um, and there's always an interest, you know, most people, and I think people should, if they're making art out of textiles, have a contextual reason why they're making an art, art out of textiles. Um, that you know that opens up a different conversation as well which is great so it's not that i don't like those shows i love those shows i almost always go to them but i just wish you know when i would just go to the met and they're showing selections from their drawing selection mm. or like the mfa was doing a show about a theme that you would see textiles right there alongside all of these more um I say traditional art mediums, but then textiles has been around forever. So it familiar is a traditional art, art medium. Yeah. Familiar, sort of ex generally accepted art mediums um, that, you know, I feel like there's like all this like talk about sort of correcting art history, but I still think that textiles is really left out of that a lot. And I do think it has a lot to do with that. It is such a, female-oriented practice, historically speaking, at least in the Western tradition, um, that, and, you know, the subjects that maybe are visited by textile artists, even today, um, you know, a lot of artists that are working with textiles are dealing with subjects and themes um, that are more closely related to, like, aspects of the vulnerability of life, maybe, you could say, um, and it seems like, for some reason, art with a capital A is still afraid of that for some reason. <laughs> mm. So yeah, it'd be nice yeah. if if it got treated nonchalantly within a context rather than being like, "Hey, everybody, here's some textiles," and it just going, "Hey, everybody, here's some art," you know, whatever it's made of. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And I think it's really exciting when that happens. Like I have been in exhibitions like that, and for me, it's 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 a way. For people to not like my work isn't an embroidery it is an embroidery but my work that i make with textiles they're, they're to me they are drawings mm. and so when people see them 
with other work that is um, not just textile based, then they realize that, you know, they see, oh, this is just a drawing. This is a, a different form of making lines on a substrate. And so then I feel like it changes the conversation about the work. Um, because sometimes I think with textile art, the conversation just stays stuck on the craft of mm -hmm. the making. Um, and there's, for any artist that's making work in textiles, there's a lot of content mm -hmm. in that work. And sometimes I think when you're talking to people that gets left out because there's so much to say about the craft of textiles um, that hasn't been said and hasn't been explored in a really intelligent way. Um, that, But then it can be frustrating. I think like for me, for instance, in graduate school, all they ever wanted to talk about was that I was a woman embroidering. <laughs> they didn't, they weren't concerned about all the men making giant metal sculptures. They didn't need to talk about, well, why are you making giant sculptures out of metal? They were just talking about what the metal was made, you know, what, what was the subject? What was the content? Mm. Whereas my critiques would be like, well, so what is your feminist statement? And how do you feel about the fact that, you know, embroidery is like associated with, you know, and which obviously was content that I was interested in, but it wasn't the only content that was there. And I feel like that can happen a lot. But when a show, when a textile piece is in a room with paintings, drawings, sculptures, whatever, all of the different things, um, that conversation gets a little like dropped and then the content conversation can come up, which is always what I'm more interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't like, <laughs> so you that say, might be selfish. <laughs> no, no, no. But like when, when people are making sculptures out of metal, people don't sort of look in detail at their riveting technique or whatever, do they? They don't, you know, they just accept the craft as taken and then they move on to the story mm -hmm. that's being told. Whereas yeah, whether it's a tufted mm -hmm. rug or it's a quilt or it's a bit of needle felting or a bit of hand embroidery, people are always like, well, would you look at that isn't that amazing aren't those stitches just perfect it's like well yeah thanks but you know these brush strokes or this bit of pen you know any competent blooming watercolor artist we never go oh i love the way you bled those two shades of blue together because you don't do you, you just take it right. and move on no yeah that's quite right. interesting isn't it um so you yeah you came into embroidery whilst doing the photography and printmaking stuff at college right yeah, well, I was in graduate school. Mm. I started to embroider. Um, I had never embroidered before. Mm. Um, but it got you. It definitely caught me. I like started to embroider for like I, I had a, a a project I wanted to do, and it materially felt like the right material and the right process because it was about healing and sort of a meditative, slow process related to healing. Um, and so I very much was like conceptually this is the right material to make this piece in um and i learned to do the split stitch mm -hmm. um through like a jenny hart like little yeah. gift box thing um and the because i tried to do it without it and it was a nightmare and so then i was like i gotta go buy a little book or something <laughs> um and there were no books on embroidery really at that time so i bought like you know the little gift set you could buy I never did any of the <laughs> iron on things but um, I used her little book to learn the stitches and I thought it would be like a one-off thing I just thought I wanted to make this one piece um, 
for a lot of reasons I was trying to make this piece and um, I just kind of got hooked because I loved the I loved the fact that it's portable. I love the fact that you it was it was somewhat passive labor like I could pick it up and put it down. Um, I was in graduate school, so I was like going to lectures all the time. I was going to New York City all the time on the being on the subway, and I was also like feeling like I needed to be making art all the time. And so it felt really conducive to all of those desires of being able to be productive while I was also like doing these other things. Um, and I also think I, I ended up becoming attracted to it because my particular graduate program was very seat, butt in the seat in the studio eight hours a day type of graduate right. program. That's that's what they wanted out of you. And the reality is photography is not that way. Mm. Um, photography is about being in the world and observing and being ready to capture at least the way I photograph because I don't take constructed photographs. Mm. Um, I... I, I discover or find or witness my images um and so everybody else was in the studio eight hours a day I'm totally like I want to be a straight a student type of person um so I also think it was a way for me to create work that required that of me um so that I could meet the sort of cultural expectation of my graduate program so and I'm also like Midwestern, so <laughs> okay. I grew up in the middle America. Um, so, you know, the work ethic is high there. You got to work. Mm -hmm. You got to you got to work. Mm -hmm. And so I think also it was very attractive to that sort of sensibility in me of like it was labor intensive. And I could point at it and say this took a lot of work. Yeah, a picture that you've so. taken, even if you spent five hours getting to the right place in the universe to take that photo people are still going to be oh you just took a photo right whereas if you've been right because the thing i like when we did push stitchery you know in there we've got pieces mm -hmm. from your sleeper series and i want to know mm -hmm. how you went from small things to full size you lying in a bed size bed type pieces and i mean that what was the evolution towards that um well it happened pretty quickly um when i started to work with images um but honestly i I, 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 I always start with a photograph, so all of my images um, start from a photograph, and I had done a project where I documented my bed photographically every single day for a certain amount of time, and I would write this sort of uh, confessional, um, sort of diaristic um, response to the bed, um, and I had been taking self-portraits that were in the domestic space, um, and I think I just had that image and I just envisioned it uh, life-size on a bed. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, curious about what that would be like. How, how would I do that? Um, ha I had just recently, because a friend of I had started to get a little bit bigger before that, but I was like pillowcase scale um, because I was working from actual photographs. And then a painter friend of mine was like, oh, well, you should project them. Um, you should get a projector. It would be so much easier. And so I got like, you know, one of those cheap, terrible tracer things at like Michael's. Um, they're horrible. I mean, now I use a digital projector, but, um, so I bought one of those and it was, 
like being able to see these photographs at any scale was just extremely exciting because I already knew how to interpret them into embroideries by then. Um, and so I just did it and it was very exciting. It was totally different challenge. Um, I had to figure out like to fill in large areas of color. I ended up using applique more because it was so time intensive to fill large areas of color with stitch. Um, so that was when I first started to incorporate applique was making the larger scale work. And I'm a person that like obsessively documents process. <laughs> and so for this, for that particular piece of me on the bed, it was like, again, like I had a show coming up. Um, I knew what it was conceptually about and I wanted like a anchor piece for the gallery, like a really special new anchor piece. Um, and I envisioned that image on the bed, um, for this, for this exhibition. And I didn't know if I would ever do it again, but through the process of documenting me making that image, I just became really fascinated with the body sort of lost in the space of the bed. Um, and that the, like how, because I spent so much time making this singular body, which was mine, um, I was really interested in how I both looked really peaceful, but I also looked dead um, in a lot of ways. And it had, it made me start to just think about the bed itself as this, like, you know, it's like this really liminal space in our life where that's where we like are out, you know, we used to mm. sort of drop out of our life and into our unconsciousness and our dream state. It's also where we are both, most of us, are born and die. Um, and it's also the place where we go when we're at our most vulnerable moments, but it's, it, it's also like in an intimate relationship where the most powerful moments of intimacy can happen. Um, and so I just became really interested in the bed as a, like a location and sort of as this liminal space in life. And it's also kind of fascinating that it's, I forget the statistic now because I made this work so long ago, but I used to know the statistic of the average amount of hours we spend in our bed. It's like a lot. Isn't it like it's a, a third lot of, of our lives or something? <laughs> it's like a third of our lives. Mm. And yet it's like the room that you close the door when guests come home. It's like the last room you renovate. It's the last room you buy new things for. It's like this, this forgotten hidden space in a lot of households. Um, so I just became really interested in that. And then I got really excited about the challenge of making the large scale work. Mm. Um, because I definitely, you know, embroidery is extremely time consuming. And so I really had to be much more creative about how I thought about positive and negative space, um, how I thought about color. Um, and that was exciting to me. I'm, I'm definitely a person that once I know how to do something, I don't want to do it anymore. Like I'm bored. <laughs> right. um, so it was a really exciting sort of um, project of how far and how big I could make an embroidery that still held up as a strong image. Um, and they got heavier and heavier. So then that was like a structural challenge of like, how do I support all of this cloth hanging? I mean, it would be a conservator's nightmare, some of those works. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and so it was it was very organic um, in a lot of ways, which my process is pretty intuitive and organic in general. Um, 
but it really just started with an image and a suggestion to use a projector and then it was like for years so that's all i did <laughs> have you still got them um i still have most of them yeah yeah can i yeah, can I ask yeah, a really yeah, dumb yeah, question are they like folded up yeah or are they like really like <laughs> you still got them hung on a wall somewhere because they have to be flat <laughs> I do not have them hung up on a wall. Um, I wish I had enough space to just have 10-year-old work hung up on a wall because it's almost 10 years old, I think. Uh, they are rolled up. Uh, okay. That would make a lot of sense now that you've said that. Um, I was mm -hmm. thinking while you were mm -hmm. saying that as well of, you know, like, um, I think it's Char Charon, Charon, the person who takes you across to the River Styx the person who takes you across to the underworld and beds as mm. liminal spaces. They're a bit like that, aren't they? Because for a lot of people, they're the mm -hmm. place that they lie on and they don't come back from lying on those beds. And it's quite, right. there's a lot to be said for that. But then yeah. was that the first time that you got into liminal spaces then? Because that is a theme of yours that still exists to this day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, but that was, I mean, my work changed a lot right before that, um, like in graduate school, essentially I had been making work about a trauma-based subject and I didn't want to make work about that anymore. Um, I had a very different perspective on life and I wanted to make work more about that perspective. And so in graduate school, my work shifted significantly to be, uh, that particular work was a lot about, um, like maybe like affirmation and confession, like, like having a level of like, um, acceptance and celebration of the complications that exist within intimacy. Okay. Um, and that led to the bed work and the bed work, the sleeper series did very well for me. It was in a lot of, it was exhibited a lot. It was written about, I was interviewed. Um, and so, you know, when you have the opportunity to, have a body of work that um, gets a fair amount of attention, you uh, have to learn how to talk about it, <laughs> but also you learn a lot in the process of talking about it. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it really, the level of attention it got gave me the opportunity to really reflect on the work a lot, um, which introduced that I was really interested in um aspects of liminal space and also um sort of temporal things mm. um temporal i think making the work really made me realize because you know it would take if i was working full-time in the studio it would take about a month um like six to eight hours a day five days a week sort of thing to make a piece um and so I think spending that amount of time on things and sometimes i was working from photographs that were older um it became me, I became really acutely aware of how quickly things change, um, how quickly a person's face changes or even like the sheets on your bed or the color of your wall or the house you're living in. Um, and so I think that opened up a real awareness of, um, the sort of ephemeral quality of our human lives. Mm. Um, and that became, over the years, um, you know, also becoming a mother, I think being a parent makes you like acutely aware of the passage of time um, because it's so rapid in front of you mm. while your children are particular, particularly young. Um, and also time is so precious <laughs> because you have none of it, as, as you um, mm -hmm. had mentioned. Um, 
that I think the process of becoming a mother also made me more aware of those things. And that's really where um, my work has shifted is to sort of explore that aspect much more. Cause, yeah. Cause but that was where it began. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So more recently, like you've done work that is, I love this. You've done work that has been inspired by dust and now you're very much doing work that's inspired by daylight and the way light plays on surfaces. And to me, it feels like, like, looking at some of the stuff you did to do with dust almost makes me think of like Hubble telescope images of constellations, you know, it's like these universes that exist and, and, and with the daylight, you know, you're, you're paying attention to things that we just don't notice because we sort of take them for granted, but those things we don't notice are also witnessing us doing things. So there's like this connection, like the way the daylight bounces off objects, they're having a conversation with objects and they're presenting a different view of objects. And what's interesting to me is you're then trying to capture that rather than the moments that are witness. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I started to do the dust work first. Mm. Um, Those sort of came about in a funny, I was drawing threads. Um, Like I had, you know, the little orts and stuff mm. on my table. And I had also, this was during a period where I was not doing as much textiles and I was really struggling with how that is how I'm most well known. That's where a lot of opportunities come from. And I wasn't feeling like my work made sense being made in textiles anymore because I was making work about ephemeral things mm. And textiles take forever to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was sort of exploring what that meant for my work and where I wanted my work to be going. And it was a very complicated uh, moment because I would get invited to do a show or teach or share my work. And it would always be textile based, but I wasn't really making that much textile work at the time. Or I wasn't as excited about that work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started to draw the, like, threads um, on my table. It's called, um, they were about, like, undoing knots. And so it was sort of a metaphor of maybe if I could draw these interlocking threads, I could sort of undo the knots of my life and my mind. Um, And it really turned me on to drawing, which was not something I ever ever had really seriously done. I mean, I went through a traditional fine arts program and so I was required to do a lot of drawing, but you know, from the time I was 21, graduated undergrad, I really had not picked up a pencil to draw Mm. in, you know, 10 years or whatever, however long this was. Um, And this drawing the threads was just sort of like a, you know, I was just trying to kind of get out of my head and let something happen. I realized that I was really interested in drawing all of a sudden. And I had also been just again by impulse intuition, I was collecting the sweepings of my kitchen floor because I just, I couldn't believe how often I had to sweep my kitchen (laughs) floor. It felt like this like endless labor of never being done. Mm -hmm. And I like to walk around barefoot, but I really hate (laughs) dirty floors under my bare feet. So it was this, um, like, I I just was like, sort of like flabbergasted by how dirty a floor can get in one day. 
And so I just started to collect them in little Ziplocs, um, not having any idea what I was going to do with them because they're disgusting and gross and not beautiful at all. Um, and then I went on a photography residency where they had a high res scanner and I actually took them there cause I was planning on doing photograms, which is when you like put something on a dark room, you know, like a dark room paper, you expose it to light and it, it, uh, takes the image. Mm. Um, but those were really unsatisfying because they were black and white. All of the detail was lost. They just became these like completely abstract forms and I wanted the specificity. And so I thought of trying to do it on the scanner. And so I scanned these with a really high res scan scanner and made cameraless photographs of them. And to my shock, they were insanely beautiful um, because what a scanner does is it removes space and so the objects are on the surface of the glass and they're super high resolution and super detailed but there's really no shadow um, there's no sense of light because it's an even like the light is very even across the surface um, and then depending on if the scanner is closed or open you get black a black space behind it or a white space behind it and I just was sort of awestruck by how hair and litter and dirt and dust became the cosmos. <laughs> um, and it just felt so much about what I was trying to make work about was how, you know, our days are made up of every day. They're not made up of the big moments. Our life is not made up of big moments. Our life is made up of sweeping your floor every day after dinner. You know, like that, that, that's actually what makes our life up is these small, tiny moments. And I want to elevate those moments and ask people to notice them and even celebrate them. And it felt like by taking these sweepings and making them beautiful and relate to something so mysterious and not yet understood um, felt really right. And, but I missed the labor. There's really no labor in that process. It's very quick process. And that's when I started to draw them because then I could bring in the meditative act of reflecting and sort of, it's almost like a fair, almost like a form of prayer drawing these meticulous really uh, obsessive almost drawings of dust and I thought a lot about the dust also in the same way that the bed is right like we're surrounded by dust it's everywhere um, it's fascinating the evidence of the bodies that are in dust you can tell what color hair people have which tells you what age they are you can tell if they're animals you can tell if they're plants um, like there's so much information in the dust of a house that I found it really fascinating how they were really portraits of houses mm -hmm. and portraits of moments, you know, like, you know, after a party, a birthday party, there were like sprinkles on the floor or like after like, you know, different things, different things would be in the sweepings. Um, but just like the bed, it's like, it's hidden. We like sweep it up and we hide it. All of this evidence of our life. It's like, it's, it's the literal, like, this, this is the evidence of our body being in this space. Mm. Um, but we just, it's like culturally you erase it. Mm. A, a good house is a clean house, you know, and we just discard it without even thinking about the fact that it's, it's our bodies. It's our children's bodies. It's our 
all the things we take care of and loves bodies. It's an evidence of like, what's the environment and landscape we're in. Um, so it became really interesting to me also, like how beautiful something we dismiss so easily could become if you abstracted it and you removed it from an environment and sort of let it speak to the cosmos, which is also just dust. You could say it's just dust too, um, just in a different way. But it's the but same. That's what sort of led to there. Yeah, but you get that when people, when you see like macro photography of sand, don't you? You, mm -hmm. you suddenly realize that sand is magnificent. These tiny little crystals, no two, I mean, some are bound to be kind of alike. It's a numbers game. But I love what you're saying there about dust as well, you know, because it is, it's bits of us, it's bits of everything. And we just... Like, we don't notice it. Then suddenly we notice it and we go, oh, my goodness, we've got a lot of it. But, yeah, we don't get to have the perspective on it that tells the tale of how the dust was made. But the more dust there mm -hmm. is in a place, presumably that means the more life has been in a place. It's also, like, I think also for me, part of what was interesting about it was because it did so immediately start to look like the cosmos. Like, I didn't, I didn't intend for that to happen initially. It just happened, and the relationship was so present. Um, I also find it like interesting of, you know, why do we love to look at the stars, right? Why do we love to stand at the edge of the ocean? Why does that feel so good? It's like so healing, right? When we, when we do these things. And I thought a lot about that when I started to make this work and really started to like read and research and think about what is the cosmos to a humanity, like <laughs> to, more in like a philosophical, psychological way. Um, cause physics is, I, I have tried to, I do read some of the physics, but that's not as interesting to me. Um, um, is that I think, you know, we, we get so caught up in our big, you know, we think our lives are so big and they're so important, but they're not right. We're blips of time. <laughs> We're blips of time. And I think sometimes what feels good about looking up at a really beautiful star filled night or standing at the edge of the ocean is how small we feel. And then all of our stuff isn't so important anymore. And we can feel relief in our smallness and we can feel freedom in our smallness. And so I thought that that sort of philosophical thought towards that was really interesting in that I was all of a sudden looking at kind of the smallest thing available to me. I mm. mean, obviously there's a lot smaller things if we want to go scientific, but um, I don't want to go scientific. I want to go lived life. Um, and so I think that was also really interesting to me is how I could take this really small thing, the particles of dust on my floor, relate it to this vast thing that we are part of, but then also sort of relate it to the psychological conundrum of how important we think our problems and we are and yeah. yet how good it feels when we realize that that's wrong they're just not they don't matter as much as we think they do um and that's become more and more of something that i've become really interested in exploring understanding and like communicating through the work and does that i guess you get a lot of inner peace from that because this is also a form of therapy that you're going through isn't it as well as the making you're going through an exploration. I always think that, like, you know, it's almost like we're all, I'm going to get a bit metaphysical here. I have read a few books on the subject, but it's like we're all like bits of a flame that is the sun, you know, and we don't understand that we are the sun. And 
until we can be bits of flame and understand what it is to see this magnificent thing. And then suddenly we can understand that we're made of that thing. And that's the same that you're speaking to, mm -hmm. isn't it? When we stare out into space forever, we suddenly realize how magnificent life is in a way that we're often mm -hmm. too swept up in our own bullshit to realize on a day to day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. And absolutely. It's like healing for me. <laughs> I think, I mean, I've always worked somewhat autobiographically and I think my work, like why I'm an artist is really to try to understand the world and understand my place in the world and deal with the world and how hard it is to be a human sometimes. Um, but I uh, like I also think it's like painfully beautiful, but really mm. beautiful. Mm. Um, and so I think a lot of my work has always been about trying to come to terms with how it's so intensely beautiful to be present in this world and love people and be loved by people and witness the earth. Um, but it's also really painful and really hard and really complicated. And so I think my work has always been about trying to understand that and figure that out for myself. Um, and this work, I think, you know, we change and shift and it's definitely about reminding myself of those things. Um, but it's also, I think I've noticed how absent that sort of presence is in our busy like our lives are so busy and so full and there's so much information coming into us all the time that you know is anyone noticing that the sun which we are made of like you said is like passing across their face mm. <laughs> um that you know like are we missing the whole point you know a little bit um and i feel like I i've also somewhat the art world for a while now has been kind of like ugly. It's been really interested in making ugly work about the ugliness of the world. And I don't think that's the role of art. I think art is, you know, to be transcendent. Mm. Um, it's to be the guide. And I really um, have become really committed to like allowing beauty back into my practice and allowing and, and looking towards making art that can make people feel better instead mm -hmm. of worse, yeah. um, including myself, for sure. It's what I want to see. It's what it's the art that moves me does that. Um, that's the context I want to be part of. Um, and like, I think the light part of my work has come in and it's definitely the dominant subject that I've been interested in, in the last year, I'd say. Um, it kind of accident. I mean, I'm a photographer, so I always have loved light. I've always used natural light. That's been my primary practice. And I think, you know, I think I became a photographer. Well, I don't think I know I became a photographer because seeing latent light appear on a piece of paper in a bath of chemicals is the most amazing thing ever to realize that we can hold and capture something that we still don't understand is, um, really amazing. There's a real elegance, there's a real simplicity to your choices to recreate the way light 
is creating shadow on a wall, those kind of things. There's such an innocence to that storytelling that you're not adding anything. You're going, here's a thing, and I'm going to capture that thing. You're documenting it again in a different way. But when you're saying about, you know, wanting to share beauty and wanting to focus on that, you, you can't necessarily get much less political than the way light hits a thing and reflects onto a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think I've wanted to, like, I've started to think about the word nothing a lot. And in my photography, I think I've really tried to, it's like I want to get as close to taking a photograph of, of nothing as possible, but it still be an interesting photograph. And I'm, because I think nothing is everything, right? Like, nothingness is everything. There, it's not empty. It's full in my mind. Um, and so I don't think there has to be all of this, like, imagery for there to be something, you know, intensely moving, right? It's like a, a great poem doesn't have to be long. It can be three, three, you know, William Carlos Williams poem about the plums is one of my favorite poems. It's like, you know, it's three lines, um, that I think I'm, I'm really fascinated with how, how empty or how still or how quiet can something be and it still be moving. And I think that my work, I've really tried to remove all the noise. Like I don't want any extra stuff anymore. Um, and so I do sometimes question the light work because like currently what I'm doing is super, super simple aesthetically. It's, and it is literally documenting the shapes of light through different mediums, mostly through like a kind of like a reverse applique. Um, and they're really simple. And so I think the intellectual artist says, oh, I need to do something more. But but I don't. It, it, I, you know, you don't. And I think that sometimes we like hear all these voices that are telling us we have to do more and maybe we need to do less. Um and I've definitely been exploring that in my work and negative space became so important to me in making the dust drawings and the dust pieces. Um, the negative space was such an important part of like holding the abstraction of these particles. Um, and so I think my consideration of negative space and my exploration of that and my work made me understand that like allowing more space can actually have more power than filling space does that make sense yeah yeah because it's a lot braver to say nothing than to say something yeah 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 so i've kind of been exploring that and i'm still exploring that i mean it's interesting <laughs> because so you said like Prior to doing the sleepers PCG, you spent quite a long time documenting your beds. And then you talked about with the dust, you kind of documented your floor sweepings and then made something from mm -hmm. them. So in some ways, it's almost like you're just documenting another thing here. And who's to say what that will lead yeah. to? But the odds are it might lead to something else somewhere down the line, because that seems to be your track record. You document until the idea presents itself and then you go and build something out of that. But I think there's 
Yeah. There's a lot to be said for just, you know, like we've got a thing where when we go and walk the dog, we do stop and smell the roses because if there are roses there to be smelled, you ought to go and stop and smell them. And I think there's just the paying attention to the small things and seeing the magic in those small moments. There's a cartoon that I love called mm-hmm. Bluey. Um, it's a Australian cartoon. My daughter loves it Big too. Up your daughter. <laughs> I'm familiar. It's but you know, they, they have little things where sometimes they'll just show the light streaming through a window and some of the little dust motes just floating in front of the window. And those are the little things and those are little moments that's, you know, that's a complete intersection between the two things that you're paying attention to. And those are small bits of magic mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. still, you know, like when people release loads of balloons. Or when you see a hot air balloon festival and we'll just all stare at it, won't we? Because it's so amazing. And and it's like micro versions of those. It's just, I guess you're just mm-hmm. in the same way as needlework is often used to um, make people pay attention to stuff because of the choice of medium. You know, we get that a lot with politics, don't we? Where we'll take images and we'll needlework them and therefore people reconsider them. And I'm not saying you're explicitly using needlework to that aim, but what you're doing is you're just presenting these situations for people that they wouldn't give any other thought to and just offering them up for people for a chance to see the magic in it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I hope to be doing is to just invite them, invite the viewer to notice these things in their life in a different way. And like definitely by making the dust work, I still sweep my floor all the time, mm. but I have a more positive relationship to that. And when I clean my floor, it feels like a ritual almost. And then when I always see beauty in the pile before I put it up and throw it away. Um, and I think, you know, the and like for me, for sure, I mean, I've always been a light witnesser because I've, I've always loved light. I'm like a person that needs my apartment to have a lot of light. My studio always has to have a lot of light. Um, like I'm a person that loves being in light. Um, but I feel like even still, even though I've always been that way, making this work has made me so acutely aware of how the light changes in my house through the seasons, like what time of year I can see this light shape or that light shape how there's a different color to the light in the winter than in the summer. Um, And generally, when I wake up out of bed, the first thing I notice is the light shape in my bedroom that's there every day. And so I feel like it's created this like mapping of the beauty that is just constantly moving through my life and space, um, which we all have. Um, We all live in space and we all have access to the Mm. sun somehow. Um, but then it is really interesting how none of those shapes would exist without us, right? The sun is indifferent to these shapes, right? It's that we build these structures and we build these windows to let light in and air in, and they move across the objects and bodies that we've chosen to surround ourselves with. Um, that I think it's really interesting that how I'm even seeing the beauty couldn't happen if I didn't have like a home and an environment in that home of certain objects. And so again, it's sort of this, mm, there's still a portraiture aspect to it because it's not just documenting light. It's documenting light in response to a specific place. Yeah. Like how the light plays off the musical instruments that you're providing because you've built those Mm -hmm. sculptures or whatever you get that thing. If you get there's there's a thing and then there's a thing that's not a thing. So thing, 
no thing. And then you get this bit in the middle that's like neither a thing nor a nothing. And it's almost like maybe that's the liminal. That's the liminal, isn't it, now that I think about it? Mm -hmm. How do you think that then, because you're a mother and you're a teacher, how does your change in perspective and change in practice inform your motherhood and your teacherhood? Um, Well, definitely in mothering um, is really when I started to notice and pay attention to the repetition that exists in life because, you know, caregiving is so much about repetition. Um, And so I think I needed to make that beautiful because it was not beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) feeling. Um, And so I think a lot of my interest in repetition and um, seeing routine and seeing the same thing over and over and over again has a lot to do with me coming to terms with the repetitive nature of caregiving. Um, And so I think in a way, mothering informed the practice first. Um, I mean, I always have worked somewhat serially, so it wasn't like absent in my practice beforehand, but I don't really think I thought about it that way. Um, And I made a piece really specifically about that where I embroidered uh, wash, dry, fold, repeat over and over and over and over and over again. And it would be like wash, dry, fold, repeat, wipe butt, wash, dry, fold, repeat, kiss, boo, boo, wash, dry, fold, repeat, sing lullaby, wash, dry, fold, repeat, do dishes. And so there would be all of the monotonous things, but there would also be the beautiful things sort of tied into this wash, dry, fold, repeat um, language. And it was white thread on white fabric. So it was also very invisible. Like speak, And I've done, an, I'm still doing a well, like it's, I intended to be like long period series over the many layers of mothering of invisible labor, all the like invisibility of the labor of caregiving. And I think that while I was making that piece and the sort of pieces surrounding that time period, um, I was really looking for a way to find beauty in the boring mm. and beauty in the banal and in the everyday and in all of the stuff that we are not taught culturally by movies, <laughs> they are beautiful. Um, and so I think that that, I mean, there are other reasons why, I mean, I've been, I've been practicing yoga for o- almost 30 years. Mm. So I think that practice has informed my outlook on life significantly um, of trying to find beauty and presence Um but so I think the, uh, the work that I'm making now was really informed by that work. And as far as like mothering, I think, you know, I just want my kids to be able to be present. Mm. And so I'm really strict about screen time. <laughs> um, even though we are, we do have screens in our household. We're pretty strict about screen time. Um, I make my kids meditate sometimes. Um, I point out a lot of things to, you know, I'm always pointing out, Oh, look at this. Isn't it beautiful? Mm. Look at, cause I can't help myself. I just want to like share the things I see. I'm a very visual person and I just want to be like, look. Um, and then I think, you know, I think a lot about both my husband and I's partnering is about giving our kids space, um, which is involves a lot of things. Um, and in teaching, I mean, I think I can't help but share artists and talk about work that is about um, 
contemplation because that's where my area of fascination is. Um, but I do think I also really talk about beauty in a different way than a lot of contemporary instructors might. I think that in the art world, beauty kind of has become a bad word. Um, and not as much in photography because in photography, it kind of has to exist because that's what makes a photograph have punctum or not. Um, but, um, so I don't think in photography it's quite as strongly anti-beauty, um, but the word is still pretty like misused. And I think it's really, I, I heard, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name. Um, she's a conceptual photographer and I'll think, maybe I'll think of her name. Um, but I read an interview on her and she talked about beauty and art of like, you have to seduce the viewer because if you want to make work about a subject that is difficult, in any way, why would they look at it? Why would they contemplate it? And I definitely talk about work a lot that way now. Like for instance, um, I talk about Kara Walker's work in one of the classes I teach because it's a really great example of positive negative space. Um, and her work is really beautiful. Like formally her work is really beautiful. And it's about an extremely difficult subject matter. And I talk about how she's using beauty to have the viewer engage and be like curious and like intrigued. And then only after she's sort of seduced and sucked the viewer in, then you realize what the content is, mm. but by then you're already there. And so I think as an instructor, I talk a lot about that and I point out how contemporary artists are actually using it as a tool to engage their viewers. Um, even when they're making work about subjects that are and content that is like very not beautiful. Um, and so I think it definitely influences my teaching in that way. And I think I also like talk a lot about being present, especially, yeah, I mean, it, especially in like my drawing and photography classes is like, it's, it's about looking carefully. Like to me, being a great artist is really being a great looker. Like you, you look well, you see well, and that all of a sudden allows you to make things that are visual. And so we do a lot of exercises that are just about learning to see better and see more carefully. And obviously the way you do that through photography and drawing is really different, but it's also not, it's just, you're using different tools. Um, and so I, I really enjoy kind of bringing that conversation in and having it not just like to me, doing a really excellent observational drawing is not about technique. It's about learning to see extremely well. Mm. And so that's more of how I, that's the type of language that I use when I'm teaching stuff like that. It's like not accepting things at face value, which is what like we do in life anyway, don't we? We just see a thing and we just take it for granted or whatever, but you're saying... Or we think we know something and we don't see it, you know, like it's like if you're drawing a chair, everybody knows a chair has four legs, but a lot of perspectives of a chair, you don't see four legs. Mm. And people, especially when they're drawing from life, they will draw what they know instead of what they actually see. Like they don't trust their eyes to actually know better than them because they can't, they can't let, a go, let go of like the intellectual knowledge of a chair or a person or whatever it is, you know, a familiar object. It's much, it's much, it's actually much easier to draw things you're less familiar with because you are not listening to your brain. You have to look. 
that it's it's not only like do we take things at face value we also like don't trust our own vision our mm. own witnessing we trust what we know more than what we know know yeah. by seeing and what we know is what we've been told more often than not as well so right yeah exactly 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 i was thinking about what you're saying a minute ago and i wondered what the difference between routine and ritual is because you talk about routines a lot but then i think rituals yoga is a good example of that that feels like it's routines with beauty or something i don't know i think they're routines with intention i think it's intention i think you know anything you know like in Buddhism, they like can talk about like how, you know, when you're doing your dishes, it can become like this really strong meditation. Um, and then it becomes a ritual. As soon as it becomes that, it's a ritual. It's no longer you're doing the dishes. You are doing the dishes with a sense of intention. Um, and so it becomes a ritual. So I, I don't think it has to be beautiful right. to be a ritual. Um, but I do think it has an intentional awareness to it. And I think that the you know, I think we've become a much more secular culture and we've lost ritual as a result. Um, but I think peoples, humans need ritual. We need ritual in our lives. Um, I think it creates meaning to the everyday monotony of being alive. Um, it creates the potential for beauty. Um, but because we've become more and more secular, it's become a little bit lost and there hasn't been a replacement for it. And I think that people, I know that I have looked for it a lot cause I, I was raised going to church and I don't go to church and I miss the ritual. I don't miss the dogma, but I miss the ritual mm. and I miss that for my children. Um, and I've had that conversation with lots of people that are of my generation that maybe did grow up with religion, but have not continued in a traditional way having that relationship, um, but seeking the desire to still have ritual in their lives and to create ritual for their children. Um, and I think that we are really looking for that as a, as a, as a culture. And a, a, I mean, the greater world is so like sort of smushed together now that like the, almost like the greater world culture yeah. is looking for um, returning ritual because I think that intentionality does create meaning. Mm. Yeah, it makes you realize why people love, I don't know, craft groups. Craft groups provide rituals, don't they? Right. It's that kind of community Absolutely. without the dogma all brought together around a, a joined passion. Absolutely. And it also creates, like, you know, like coming around a table mm. to do a lap project, right? It also, it, it create you, you come to the table, right? You have to make the choice to come to the table. And then at, there's something about having a project in your hands that you can be sort of passively doing because you can actively listen or talk um, that our barriers drop. Mm. And it's different than when you're around a table with nothing in your hands that I, I, I'm amazed at the conversations that happen around my workshop tables or when I'm like helping a residency of the level of depth of conversation that you can have and the level of laughter and conversation mm. you can have. And I think there's something about coming to the table, but also having something active. So you are not being passive 
but you can just it's like we can all of a sudden we can be more present because we have this thing in our hand that we're doing um that I do think there's a ritualistic quality to that and there's because gathering with intention gathering with intention is a ritual mm. and I do think there's an attraction to that for people I mean even just like you know anything like if you're just like I'm just I'm gonna knit every day after I put my kids to bed that's creating a ritual it's like intending something and doing it and it creates meaning to the sort of what happens after my kids go to bed or something but I also think the rise of like handmade craft textile based practices is also like we our lives have gotten so far away from tactile objects, right? And so I think we want to make things. We want to see our our bodies produce something beautiful. Mm. And craft is a really accessible way to do that. It's it's not expensive. It doesn't have to be intellectualized. It does have a lot of passive labor in it. Like there's a lot of thinking labor, but then there's a lot of I just have to do, I have to just sew, I have to just count stitches, I have to just quilt these pieces together, or piece these pieces together, that I think it it provides an opportunity of tactility that isn't, it's not, it's, it's hard work, but it's a different type of hard work, it's not like we have to be like, thinking the whole time, we can just be, like, I stitched for an hour and a half yesterday, and it was the best hour and a half of my day, Mm -hmm. because I just was, with a needle and a seed stitch and deciding which direction do I go? Which color of yellow do I pick up? Which way do I want to fill this shape? And I didn't have to think about anything else. And that's rare right now in our lives Mm. is like being able to just like really focus on something, but not in an, it's not exhausting to make, you know, that's like a, it's a quiet focus. It's a small focus. I mean, I, stitched for an hour and a half and probably got an inch and a half (laughs) done you know (laughs) like so there's no rushing it right you cannot rush textiles it doesn't work no matter what you try to do if you need to fill a two inch by 10 foot shape with seed stitches it's going to take the same amount of time that it's going to take no matter what there's no way to speed it up and so I think there's a surrender in that of there's no way that I can do this more effectively, more efficiently, more quickly, unless I use technology, which then that's a different process. That's completely different. And I think almost like the, the forcedness of not being able to speed it up is very fulfilling and healing during this time where we're so overstimulated. I like to think of it as like doing good work. So it's like, you know, it can be hard. It can take a long time. But no, that's the point. It's not hard. It might take time and it might require effort, but it's not a struggle. It's like the right kind of work, you know, in the same way as, I don't know, raising kids is probably the right kind of work if you're doing your job properly or something. And I also think that in some way for me, like that translates to yoga as well. Like there's, there's, um, I, I mm-hmm. come from... A- traditional practice ashtanga which is very it's a very repetitive practice Um, there's a specific sequence you do the sequence you don't move on to the second sequence till you've mastered the first sequence 
And I think learning that and understanding the value of that, um, there's also no rushing. I mean, you can practice more. And so you would get there quicker by being, by practicing more often, but there's, there's no way to get to like a perfect backbend without years of practice. That's the only way. It's the only way to get there. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes like, like for me, that was really, I'm a little bit of a controlling control freak person and like letting go of control and just letting my body do the work um, was also very liberating. And I found like a lot of release in no longer striving for something, but just trusting that with practice, I would arrive. Um, And I think in some ways, like textiles, just like, it's like the same thing. Like I can have like this piece that I'm doing seed stitches on. It's going to take me forever to make this piece. But I also know that if I keep showing up and stitching for an hour and a half and getting an inch and a half filled one day, I will be like, oh, it's done. Like all of my other pieces, they eventually get done and then they're done and I've arrived. And I think being able to trust in the process of time and showing up is, is, um, it's not something that a lot of our life we can trust right now of like just showing up, we'll, we'll get reward, right? Or just showing up, we will get um, success of any kind. But I think with certain types of making practices, all you really do have to do is show up and make. And, and with time, it will, it will be there. And if you want it to be perfect, well, it's not going to be the first time you do it. But if you keep showing up and you keep making, all of a sudden, they are perfect. And my students are always like, how do you make such a perfect stitch? I have no idea. I know how I made a perfect stitch, actually. I have stitched thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. That is how my stitch is perfect. There's no way that I can teach that. I can teach you how to do the mm. stitch, but to make it perfect in your body with your hands in the way that you make marks, the only way to do that is by stitching for thousands and thousands of hours or hundreds and hundreds um, that, you know, I think there's also like a level of letting go that has to happen as well, because there's no speeding up that I think, you know, textile processes are so in the body. They're so in your body of like, how do you hold your hand? How do you, you know, like, how do you even like teaching someone to thread a needle? It's the hardest thing to teach someone to thread a needle because no matter what you do, they're in their head and you're like, well, this is what I do and this is how I do it. And they're like, it just doesn't make sense till it makes sense. And once you know how to thread a needle, you're like, how did I ever not know how to thread a needle? You know, it's so simple. Um, But I think there's something beautiful about how there are certain physicalities to making that can't be taught. They have to be felt. And I think definitely as a teacher, I really try to teach that because I don't want people to make work like me. I don't don't want to teach them how to make my work. I don't want to teach them how to make my mark. You know, I I want them, which is sometimes really intimidating to my students because I give them nothing. There's no sampler. There's nothing respond to like they have to come up with their own thing that they have to respond to because that has meaning for them. Me giving them like, why why do you want to draw what I draw? You know, Um, but I really want them to feel their own way through the process. Um, 
even if they resist it strongly, <laughs> which sometimes they do. <laughs> They're like, who is this crazy lady? <laughs> That's probably what's quite nice in, like you were saying, with the course where you give them a found object because mm -hmm. at least they're not starting with nothing. Mm -hmm. They're starting with the thing and then it's up to them, the moves that they make. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you can show them marks, but they they'll only be they won't be their marks right they've got to put a lot of marks in right yeah and i think the way that i think about embroidery is so much it, it's it's what i love about embroidery over other needle arts is that it is just a mark there's really no rules i mean there are rules to certain stitches but even those it's an oral tradition it's like one book mm. says do it this mm. way one book says do it this way you know and so mm. to me it, it it is just marks and so we don't have to get so caught up on what's right or wrong as far as the book or the royal school of needlework says but like what's right or wrong for what you are wanting to express what's right or wrong for your mark making because that's what makes an art piece vital, right? Is like, you know, like Egon Schiele is a great example of that. Like if his, if his line didn't quiver, we wouldn't be obsessed with him. You know, if it mm. was, per it is perfect. It's so perfect, but it's also so imperfect. And that is why there are few draftsmen of such simplicity that are so revered and loved is because he embraced the way he made a line and then he made perfect mm. beautiful drawings with that line but <laughs> i think you know i think that that is when i teach that's so much a part of how i talk about embroidery and how i think about embroidery so then i can't give them my own like people say well why don't you give us a sampler and i'm like i just can't do that then it's like completely in conflict with what i what i am like promoting and embroidery as an art form. Mm, yeah. And do you think then you just have to instill the confidence in them to say, start making marks, know that these marks are the best marks you'll make at this point in time. And don't think about the marks you make in 10 years time, because who's to oh, say? Absolutely. I mean, I talk about that in all of my classes, I think. And, you know, when you're teaching workshops, you're often not teaching. I mean, usually you have a mix of artists and people that have like are just doing it for pleasure um, or curiosity and you definitely have to create confidence and you know like I might we might do some drawing exercises so then they can respond to a drawing they do um, I encourage people to bring photographs to work from and I talk about how to work from photographs so then they could maybe respond to a photograph um, I always have samplers that are really simple like just a word or really simple hand-drawn samplers. So then they could take a cue off of that. And so there's lots of different ways, but I don't even, I mean, my language is always about, well, mm. if you want to do it perfect, this is how you could do it, but maybe you don't want to do it perfect. So try it this way and this way and this way. Um, because I also think, you know, like hand embroidery is, it's not machine embroidery. It's not, I don't want to see a perfect hand embroidery. I, I want to see like the way that that person embroiders and what threads do they use and how do they use those threads and are they perfect or imperfect? It's like, you know, like <laughs> with Agnes Martin paintings, mm. the ones where you see her finger bump on the lines are worth way more than the ones that she probably considered perfect. And so it's because there's the mark of her hand. You see it right there. You see that's her finger being bumped when she hit the ruler or was drawing the line. And so to me, I would much rather see an imperfect 
piece that of stitching that is that person than a perfect piece because a perfect piece I can't see the maker I mean it's kind of like you know a set musician versus like a really famous musician right a set musician has to is usually a much better musician because they have to be able to drop into any situation and play it perfectly Mm. but the famous musician plays it like they play it they're they're doing it their way with their interpretation, which is sometimes quote unquote wrong, but that's why we love it because it's not the way that we are used to seeing it or hearing it. And I feel like when I teach, especially in embroidery, because people want the perfection and like, I'm so like not that teacher <laughs> mm. um, that I fight against that because there's, there's other people that can provide that for them. So I'm just going to be the anti, the anti that. <laughs> but then but then your work shows that there's perfection in the things that we don't think are perfect. You know, there's universes to be found in bags of dust. There's, you know, transcendent situations to be found in the light bouncing off a piece of fabric on a wall mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's like, who's to say what perfection is, right? right. Just exactly. get over it. Exactly. Move, <laughs> move along. Well, and that's what I, you know, the perfect is imperfect. The imperfect is perfect sort of thing, right? Mm. That I do. And that's the way it's meant to be, right? I would I would think so. Was it like Andy Warhol was supposed to have made like 81,000 pieces of work because he had a factory and he had a system and there was something like at one point 12% of all the art for sale was like from Andy Warhol or whatever. But it's like that one probably is... Th- like his art probably isn't in the the output it's probably in the gaming the system or something right because i mean he would just do a hundred prints of the same thing or whatever so it's kind of like i guess the artistry in his case is what top level manipulating the system-based artistry or something rather than the production of the pieces at the bottom oh yeah i mean his work is so much about the concept of production Mm. right like that's what his work is about or and like you know it's in somewhat you know, Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst are coming out of that, like, genre of, like, it, it's, I mean, they're both, I think, perfectionists in many ways, but, um, you know, their work is about production. Their work mm. is about the art world. Their work is about visual media. And so, you know, Andy Warhol made mass-produced art because his work was very much about the consumer culture and the production of celebrity and all of these things that were connected to mass production. And so I think that um, it makes sense that he made a lot of work. I mean, that's part of his work is that it's, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It, it, it is producible in mass quality. It's not about the labor of the making, even though there's plenty of labor in the making. Um, it, but it, that's not what it's about. It's, it's, it's about, um, the content of the idea of our information sort of society. That was like the beginning of information society, right? And he was in response to that, um, that it wouldn't be the same if there wasn't a ton of it. Mm. This makes me think if I ever choose to become an artist, I should just make the one thing and just be done with that. <laughs> Maybe try and do the exact opposite and then disappear from view or something. Um, I'm going to pivot on to uh, my stand. I sent you these questions ahead of schedule. Yes, you did. Hopefully. Let's see how this goes, because this is always quite nice. Okay. Um, Do you have a favorite album? Uh, Well, I listen to a lot of music. I have lots of genres that I listen to. But I think um, 
if I had to pick a couple, like if I had to be on a deserted island with one album, I think it would be John Coltrane's Blue Train. Yeah. Uh, I love jazz music, and it's just like music that it never gets on your nerves. It's always, it's always like it's like a warm friend for me. Um, I also really, really love uh, Max Richter's Vivaldi's Four Seasons. If you haven't heard it, everybody should listen to it. It's an incredible classical album by the contemporary um, composer. Um, See the one he Max slightly Richter. reworked it, hasn't he? I think I can hear one of the yeah. songs in my yeah. head is more like he recomposed it. Yes. Yeah, really. Yeah, nice yeah, thing. yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful. Um, and then, as far as more contemporary music, I'm definitely like a super fan of the cure <laughs> uh probably blood flowers is my favorite album and then i listen to the velvet underground all the time speaking of andy warhol yeah right yeah, yeah. um and their album with nico is my favorite mm. album and do you, on repeat in my studio do you listen to certain types of music when you're working or do you have different types of music for different types of work uh, I have different, I, I'm mood, I'm a mood based right. music picker. Um, so I do listen to music a lot in the studio. I also listen to podcasts a fair amount, but I come and go. Sometimes I need, I need less voices and sometimes I'm like need voices. Um, and yeah, I would, I listen to all kinds of music. Yeah. I mean, those four albums are definitely popular in the mm -hmm. studio. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's pretty mood based. You got any yeah. podcast recommendations? Obviously, Needle Exchange goes without saying, but anyone's other than Obviously. That. <laughs> um, well, I listen to lots of poetry podcasts. Um, okay. I mean, most people, I'm sure, well, maybe not. Poetry Unbound is an amazing podcast put out by um, the On Being Project. Um, it's just a phenomenal, relatively short, um, you know, they're between 15 and 20 minutes long. Um, they're a poem read by uh, the host and then he sort of interprets the poem for you and then reads it again. It's a fabulous podcast. Mm. Um, I also, yeah, I listen to like lots of art podcasts. I can't think of what I listen to right now, but all the big ones I listen mm. to, I've gone through phases. I'm kind of in a non podcast phase. So they're all not like up in my head right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's one really great one though. Is it, Oh, I feel bad because it's she start uh, she started it here, and if people don't know about it, it's really good. It's about art history, um, but it, her tagline is art art hist the lonely palette. Um, it's like art history for the masses, and so she's a trained art historian. She used to work here in Boston at the MFA, and she's in Ohio now, I think. Um, but it's a fabulous podcast that talks about major works of art in art history, um, but in a way that really humanizes the story of the work. Um, and that could be through the lens of the artist or the moment in time that that art was made, or maybe the journey that that artwork has gone through. But it's, it's very fun and playful and conversational, um, but also really great exposure to like the greatest masterworks of our time. That That's one's a good cool. one. I sort of stick both. Yeah. I like the thing is poetry is definitely one of those media I'm not that familiar with. I'm more limerick than poetry, I'd say. So mm -hmm. it's quite nice to, you know, dive into that, get pushed out of my comfort zone. Um, favorite book? 
Um, my favorite book is Daybook by Anne Truitt. Anne Truitt was a minimalist sculptor um, and a mother of three. And she wrote a book um, kind of mid-career. Um, it's really just about being an artist and uh, figuring out all of that stuff. But it's an incredible book. Any artist that hasn't read it should. It's um, a seminal sort of autobiographical um, non-pretentious, very real uh, book about that process. I, I definitely connected to it even more so as, as a mother. Um, so that's a book like I go back to over and over and over again um, and is definitely probably one of my most beloved books. Um, and then I also um, love Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space. It's He was a philosopher and psychologist, I think. Um, French that wrote about space in a philosophical way, um, but with science knowledge. And it's, um, it's a little bit dense, but it's really beautiful. He's very poetic in the way he writes. Um, and so that's a book that like, I often like I've read it from front to back a few times, but um, more in recent years, it's like, I'll just pick it up and open it when I'm sort of contemplating my work, because my work has so much to do with space. Mm. Um, and then my COVID project was to read Marcel Proust's Lost in Time. Okay. Um, and so I am halfway through the sixth of the seven books. Wow. So I've read thousands and thousands of pages of it, and I'm so close. And I will finish it probably before the end of this year. Um, but uh, Alain de Botton wrote a book called Proust Will Change Your Life. And I have decided he is correct if you actually <laughs> read Proust which I don't think most people will because it's an mm. insane commitment, but you know, I make giant embroideries um, and it has definitely uh, changed my life and a profoundly important book to me now, even though I still have not yet finished it, but it's like right. a bazillion pages. So right. seven books. So um, That day book sounds a bit like the sort of mm. book that you'd write. I would love to write a day book that is as good as her day book. Yeah, it does. Yes. Yes. I, it's just her being a real person and she's I mean at that time she had just had a really large scale show at the Guggenheim which of course the Guggenheim wasn't what it is now um, and she had a show coming up at the Corcoran so she was a really established artist um, but she was at that time a single mother she had divorced her husband and he was no longer in the country and was raising three kids and she's just a human, you know, I mean, and, and I love her work. It's beautiful, but it's, it's not really my type of work. It's very, very minimalist. So I'm not so much connecting to it over an aesthetic connection. Um, but I think just being able to witness the reality of someone whose life parallels yours is a real privilege, especially when it's said with honesty. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> I, I don't think there'll be a book written by anyone that parallels my life. That would be dreadful. Um, do you have a favorite film? Uh, not really. I'm not a huge movie TV person. Um, I mean, I enjoy them for sure, but I'm not like a repeat watcher. Um, I, I've, I used to always say Amelie, the French film Amelie. I think it's like mm. so beautiful and whimsical. Um, but yeah, I don't really think I have a favorite film because I'm yeah. I'm like a one and done. <laughs> your your favorite film could be The Passing of Sunlight Through My Studio Window by Joetta Maui. 
that kind of thing. Yeah, that's my favorite film. That's cool, that's cool. And then is there um, a very interesting thing about you that nobody else really knows? Well, I I pondered this question and wondered maybe I'm not very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know that there's something super, I mean, I just am obsessed with my art and do art all the time. Um, I, like I said, I did, I have done yoga for 30 years. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, um, I started in high school and it's, um, a huge part of my life, even when I'm not doing it. Um, and a fun fact is I was a natural wine buyer for 10 years. So I have a, uh, ridiculous amount of knowledge about natural wine and an excellent palate. <laughs> is there a, what's I, what's natural wine as opposed to wine wine? A wine wine would be called conventional wine. Mm-hmm. Um, natural wine means that like conventional wine has a lot of chemicals in it because that's how you know they can make a ton of wine and you can know that when you buy whatever Charles Shaw Cabernet, it will taste exactly like that. Um, Mm. And really the way that they do that is by using chemicals to stabilize the wine, as well as using like um, mass, like uh, a controlled sort of yeast situation. Um, Because wine is actually very alive. It's a living thing. Um, So they have to kind of stop it from living in order for it to taste the same and be Mm. predictable. Um, especially over different vintages, because the vintage can so much affect the grapes. Um, whereas natural wine embraces all of that. And so instead, there is little to, I mean, to be truly natural, there's no chemicals, um, but no added chemicals. Um, instead of using packaged yeast, they might have open vats. So it's like the yeast in the air. Um, and then as a result, the wine, you know, it's meant to be consumed more quickly. It's not really meant to be sitting on a shelf aging, though there are some natural wines that are um, appropriate for that. Um, And they uh, use a lot less or no chemicals. Um, They use biodynamic farm processes usually, which is like um, herbs and things like that. Um, So their yields each year are really different based on the weather, based Mm. on the rain, based on all that stuff. Um, And so, uh, you know, one vintage to the next will be, profoundly different maybe never to be seen again type of vintage and a lot of times because they're smaller farmers they're like using lesser known grapes they're using um ancestral grapes or native grapes so they're not so much focused on like oh i've got to make cabernet sauvignon they could be doing that but they're more often using older grapes um that naturally grow on the land more easily do you have a favorite wine do I have a favorite wine? Um, I mean, do you have like, are there ones like, I like a good red wine. I quite like a good Shiraz, sometimes a bit of a Merlot. I, I even feel like I'm doing it wrong now because it's like, no, that's not what the natural people call them because they're all the same or something. But Well, they could be called that. Um, uh, I like, I, I mean, I'm seasonal. I love orange wine. I'm, I'm more of like an adventure wine drinker. I like to try something different. Um, like I, when I go to a restaurant, especially if they offer natural wine, I kind of say, what's the weirdest one you have? Mm. Um, that's, that's the one I want to try. Um, but I mean, I love, I love a good rosé in the summer. Um, that means for me, very clean, mineral driven and dry. Um, 
And then in the winter, I do like red wine, but I don't like big reds. Um, like I want to taste the terroir. So like, you know, like a, like a lot of California reds are like, they're essentially California is like the perfect place to grow grapes. So like they're really juicy. So they all kind of taste the same um, because they're like in perfect conditions. Whereas in imperfect conditions, a grape kind of has to struggle. And so you end up tasting that struggle because it's sucking the minerals out of the ground sort of thing. Um, and so I tend to like a lighter red so that I can taste the different influences of its environment. Um, I most often would probably drink a French red. No, I like that. I like the adventure wine. I'll be an adventure wine person. That sounds like a good place to be. Yeah, it's fun. If people would like to find out more about you, where should they turn? Uh, well, my Instagram is a great source, which is just my name, Joetta Maui. Um, I obsessively share about process because that's my jam. <laughs> um, so I post quite a bit on there, partially just because I want to document it. But it's nice that there's a feedback loop and a community that um, in engages. Um, and then my website is also Joetta Maui. Um, I just updated it yesterday. Whoa! Wow. exciting <laughs> very First update exciting 15 years everybody <laughs> uh, maybe two it was a pretty big update um but you know if you want to see more formal work um you can go there and read all about my bio and all that fun stuff yeah cool hey Joetta. thanks for having a needle exchange with me thanks jamie for having me it was great Thanks for joining me on another Needle Exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments, or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash needle exchange. See you next time. for joining me on another needle exchange i hope you enjoyed the show i'd love to hear from you so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange that's n-w-e-d-l dot exchange with any thoughts comments or feedback and if you want to keep up with all the news sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange see you next time <laughs>